Morning. You know, just uh, getting wired up for this this morning, and I can't move too far, can I? That's the, okay. <laughs> getting wired up for this this morning, sometimes it's hard for me to remember that I actually flew complex fighters off of aircraft carriers because this seems so unusual to have this thing wrapped around my head. And typically what happens is, you know, I've had it where it, it quits, it falls off, but I'm assured by Kurt, who put it on, that this thing is never going to go away. So, so we'll be good today. We're coming to you from a very small book. And years ago, thought of this uh, with my son here. Years ago, when our sons were little, we used to teach the books of the Bible in order because you needed to know that when somebody like me said, go to the book of Micah or turn to Micah. That's all changed because now you've got this little device that you... You can hit an M, and it calls up M, Micah, and it's, uh, it's a lot easier. So if you're still of the old school, think Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. So it's in that section that we call the minor prophets. Now, they're the minor prophets because they're shorter books, not because they're less important. Uh, the Hebrews called them the latter prophets, and those were in the days when we didn't have chapter divisions. We didn't have those little chapter headings that tell us what's coming next and what it's about. We didn't have verses delineated. It was all different. But now we've got it uh, simplified for our sake. So we're going to look at the book of Micah, and we're going to look at three verses and actually focus on one of the three. We're going to look at Micah 6, verses 6 through 8, and then focus on verse 8. Theologian and professor Bruce Waltke says that Micah, the book of Micah opens with a thunderclap, the word of God. And Micah is the pen and the voice of God. He's the pen of God in writing about, remember from Christmas time, that wonderful prophecy about Bethlehem? That's one of the times we come back to Micah. He's the voice of God to King Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a relatively good king who was coming to the end of his life who begged God for more time. And God through, uh, graciously gave him 15 more years and demonstrated it by an incredible way. You need to go and look that up and see what took place in the natural order of things to demonstrate to Hezekiah that God, in fact, was going to honor his request. Like I said, Micah is one of the latter prophets during the time of uh, just before Isaiah and during the time of King Ahaz and uh, King Hezekiah. Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. And remember, those are questions to ask with the implication that the answer is what? No. And then verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Now, when you look at a verse like verse 8, of course, <clears throat> With three words, you've got to have a three-point sermon, right? I mean, you couldn't have one point or four points, so it just naturally gives you the three points. <clears throat> and these words, as we go through them, I want you to remember, 
These are words that require action. They require action on your part and my part because I'll show you how the ver verses actually speak to us, not just to Micah and the people he prophesied to. And before we go further, let me show you to, to Matthew 23 because Matthew 23 is that part. Remember sometime in the past we've talked about Old and New Testament, they're inextricably linked. And some people see different common threads through them. I see the thread of redemption from old to new. For example, the Exodus is a picture of redemption. So throughout the Bible, it's pointing towards things that are coming up out of the Old Testament. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Now we'll use these verses to say, because this is what God has said through Micah, uh, in our day we would say, you know, you, you come to church, you do all these good things, and somehow you think that's enough. That's what Micah's saying to the Israelites. That God says you do all these things and you think, that's enough. You do the sacrifices, you think that's enough, but it's not. Not unless you focus on these three things. So it's actually action out of the things that you do. Coming to church is good, don't get me wrong, but it's not an end in itself that you can forget these other things. And we'll show you that hopefully this morning. These things that God requires of us go well beyond appearances. If you were like me and grew up in some area of the Midwest, then we used to say, maybe not so much today, we used to say that if you wanted a good place to eat, go where the truck drivers go. Now, a friend of mine carried that too far one time because he took his wife to a Thanksgiving meal at a truck stop and thought that was real romance on his part. It wasn't. But there was a time in the Midwest when a long-haul truck driver pulled into a restaurant, went in to get a meal, sat down, was eating his meal, and looked over and there were three outlaw motorcyclist sitting on the other side of the restaurant who all of a sudden got up, walked over to his table and began to eat his food, drank his coffee. He just calmly stood up, walked to the cash register, paid and walked out. The waitress walked over to the table where these three motorcyclists were sitting to offer them more coffee or something. And they said uh, to her, he really wasn't much of a man, was he? And she said, well, I don't know about that. He sure isn't much of a driver. He just ran over three motorcycles on his way out of the parking lot. <laughs> now, that's not the justice we'll talk about. That's kind of an anti-justice. The justice we talk about, and we will talk about this morning, is rooted in what God wants and expects. The word justice in verse 8 means to set things right to set things right. There are over 2,000 verses in the Bible, 2,000 verses on poverty and justice. You think God cares about justice and poverty? 2,000 verses. And the word that the Hebrew word used here for justice is used over 200 times in the Old Testament. So a real big focus on the part of the Lord for us being involved with justice. It wasn't something the Israelites learned once because they were like, you and I are, they had to learn things over and over again. They learned things through the increasing, increasingly changing covenants with God because they violated them. 
And God in his grace would come back and say, okay, here, here's a new covenant. Whether it was Adam, whether it was Noah, the Davidic covenant. So they kept changing as time went on because they were pointing to the final covenant through Christ. They understood covenants, they understood consequences, yet their sinful natures continually pulled them away from their honor before God of their commitments. So let's talk about justice from an Old Testament standpoint and also from a New Testament standpoint. First of all, God's dealings with Moses in a specific instance when it came to justice. Now you remember Moses had to get water for the people two times. The second time is when God had to pronounce his punishment. Because remember, he told Moses, Moses, I want you to speak to the rock and water will come out. And what did Moses do? Walked up to the rock, probably irritated at that time, and just slammed the rock. God, in his grace, made water come from the rock. You know, he could have said to Moses, ah, that's not it, but he didn't. And Moses found out, though, that there was a penalty for disobeying God at that point. There was justice required because God is a God of justice. God is a God of justice. So Moses was taken to the top of the mountain, remember? Turned towards the promised land and told, look, there it is, but you don't get to go in. He'd spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, and God said, your penalty is you can't go into the land. Moses was a great servant of God, and that's told to us in Scripture that this was a time of God's justice. In the book of Isaiah, you remember the story probably of David. And as David became more powerful and more popular than Saul, Saul began to look for ways to David. And David had an opportunity once in the cave when Saul was sleeping to kill him. And he didn't do that because he knew that Saul was the Lord's anointed. And it would be wrong to do Justice in that case involved mercy and David being attuned to what the Lord wanted to take place. And then there's one of my more interesting ones because I think when we think about Sodom and Gomorrah, and I know some of you heard me talk about this before, when we think about Sodom and Gomorrah, we typically think about one thing that caused their punishment, don't we? We think it was because of the sexual sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. Ezekiel says, hey, not so fast, folks. There's something else going on here that caused the punishment of Sodom. Listen to this passage from Ezekiel 16. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. Did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. So there's more, more going on. And again, it's God's care for the poor and needy, God's care for the oppressed that was part of this. And of course, the one we all hear from the time we're young in church is Solomon, with the two women who came to him, and they each claimed this baby. And Solomon said, in his wisdom, and justice said, okay, we'll just cut it in half and give each of you half. And remember what the woman who was the mother said? Don't do it. Don't do it. Give it to her. And Solomon said, that's the real mother. Justice for the mother 
because of Solomon's wisdom and his closeness to the Lord. What about the New Testament justice? Probably one of the most unjust things that you and I can think about in the New Testament was the trial of Jesus. But it was God's justice for you and me that caused that to take place. God's justice for you and me that caused the trial, the crucifixion of Christ, because only in that way could we have our sins paid for. So an unjust situation that brought us justice. Paul before the Romans, another case of justice in the New Testament. Paul appealed at the right time to his Roman citizenship. Now there were other things taking place, of course, that Paul may not have known as he did this. But as he appealed to his Roman citizenship, it got him a trip to Rome. He was still in prison, but then, of course, he would come out of prison. And because he had gone to Rome, he was able to evangelize along the way and spread the gospel. Because he went to Rome, we think, after the open door Paul talks about that kept being shut in his face, that may have been him attempting to go to Spain and spread the gospel. So we think during one of those times of imprisonment, he made it to Spain to share the gospel. So justice for Paul in the midst of his persecution. And of course, all the apostles suffered the same thing with the exception of John. John, we think, died, died a, uh, a natural death. But the others in spreading the gospel through persecution went throughout the world at that time. Uh, tradition says some went to what became Russia, some went to what became China. I had a good friend of mine that I dealt with in the business world who was a uh, part of the Indian Navy from the city Goa. And that's an area of India that is uh, a Christian area. And in some of the shops around there, the shops still contain the name Thomas because we think the apostle Thomas went to India with the gospel. So persecution, you may look at it and say, that's not just, I don't deserve that. But in God's approach to spreading the gospel, it was persecution that pushed believers and pushed the apostles out with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, we don't see the justice that we think is proper all the time. But remember that real, real justice. Uh, did I just win something? <laughs> Sounded like a game show gong. Let me get back to that point. Real justice, just like our perfection, comes with the return of Christ. Whether we are here alive and go to meet him or whether we pass away and meet him that way. That's when real justice comes. Second word in the verse is the word kindness. And again, it's one of those words that you can look at and go, how important is this? But it's the Hebrew word that's used over 250 times in the Old Testament. Translated either loving kindness, kindness, gentleness, uh, mercy, a number of different ways. But it's, uh, it's modeled in God's dealings with them and the reinforcement of this from their leaders. What about kindness then in the Old Testament? David and Jonathan, back to David like we talk about David and Saul, but David and Jonathan, Scripture says, were close. And we see later on a number of times when, when Jonathan takes care of David, even as his father Saul is trying to kill David. 
Listen to these verses from 1 Samuel 18. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. That's David. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Loving kindness between two brothers almost. And of course we see that later in David's life when he took care of Jonathan's son and brought him into his court to live and eat with him. How do you treat sojourners when it comes to kindness? And again, this is, this is from the book of Deuteronomy, talking about people come into your midst. Same thing can happen in a local church. People come into our church who are both are not part of our church, but are obviously not believers. They may not look like we do. They may not act like we do. All sorts of different ways to describe them. But they're considered sojourners, so we welcome them. We want them to be under the sound of the word. In Deuteronomy 10, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. And then in chapter 27, one verse, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. Care about the sojourner. And then in the New Testament, examples of kindness that we can learn from and understand what kindness is. Probably the first story that comes to my mind was uh, the Good Samaritan. Now, you know, Samaritans were roundly despised by the Jews. The Jews had nothing to do with the Samaritans because back in the Old Testament, Samaritans were biracial, apparently. They were a mix of Assyrian and Jewish. So they weren't really Jewish. They had their own temple. They had their own Torah. So they were separate, and they separated themselves both. So the Jews would cross to the other side of the road so as not to pass close to a Samaritan. And remember the uh, story of the Good Samaritan, one of the instances in Luke chapter 10, talks about the Samaritan who comes by and finds a man beaten and bleeding on the side of the road. Cares for him, obviously not his ethnic brother, but cares for him. Takes him to a place where he can be put up, where he can be mended, pays for it. That's the kindness that the Lord's calling for us to take towards other people, especially people who aren't like us. I mean, I'm happy doing it with uh, somebody who's an old geezer like me, but if it's somebody who's different, somebody who's homeless, for example, uh, sometimes it takes more for us to be reminded that that person needs to be shown the loving kindness of the Lord. Seeking justice and mercy in our lives will help ensure we practice humility in our walk with God. We need to be humble in our walk with God. How did the Israelites view walking humbly with God? Now the word, the Hebrew word is a word pronounced sana, sana. And it means 
prudently or walking in humility. So walking prudently with God or walking in humility with God. In Old Testament walk with God, one of the examples that comes out is, of course, Abram, who walked humbly with God. God called him. Abram didn't know what he was getting into, but listened to the call of God in spite of not knowing. Genesis 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now sometimes you read these verses and you think, what a great man. Everything went well in his relationship with the Lord. So just so you don't think that that always happens, it didn't in Abram's case. And some great stories to read about it, especially when, when God came to them and said, you're going to have a son. And, uh, and they kind of laughed, you know, because at that time Abraham was almost 100 years old. And uh, wait a minute, Sarah the same way. How can this be? And, but they learned through God's uh, design and through God's intervention how to trust the Lord and believe the Lord when he said that was going to happen. But Abram, who became Abraham, walked humbly and in humility with God. We talked about earlier about Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one that Micah prophesied to. And the list of prophets is an incredible list as you listen to their messages sometimes because they had an uphill battle with many of the kings. Many of the kings would come after a good king and they'd be a son who would say, I'm just going to take off on my own, not trust the Lord, not worship the Lord, change the whole purpose of the temple. And when you read about a, a king who really follows, says, I want to follow the Lord, recognize sometimes the kings did that to kind of hedge their bets. So it wasn't simply that they turned fully to the Lord. It said in this pantheon of gods that they worshipped, they said, well, I might as well pull in the Lord too. But they still did things that were just and right, which gave in to the, the common good or common grace for the people that were part of their kingdom. But for Hezekiah, here's what happened. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. And Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. Now catch this. This shall be a sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back ten steps. So the sun turned back on the dial the ten steps by which it had declined. That would get your attention, wouldn't it? As a way to be convinced that God was really going to do what he said 
When, if you've seen a sundial, it has that kind of wing device standing up that casts a shadow based on where the sun is, and all of a sudden that shadow whoop, moved backwards. And I'm sure Hezekiah said, what a God, what a God I serve. And then the last one in the Old Testament that talks about walking humbly with God, for me, was Daniel. Daniel. Remember, Daniel was taken captive, and, uh, and throughout the book of Daniel, Daniel's not a shy witness for God's grace, is he? And he starts right off by telling those who were put, put in charge of him, I can't eat your diet. You know, here's a guy who's a captive, and he's telling them what he can and can't do. I can't take this diet. So here's what we can do. Let us eat a proper diet for us and see if we stay healthy. And they did. They stayed healthy. The Lord blessed them. Daniel chapter 1, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You may remember the names differently because they were renamed. The last three were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Daniel was uh, Belshazzar, I think. So renamed. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. You know, it's through things like this, we've got a wealth of things that we as parents have used and can use to teach our children. And we learn along the way. And these are incredible, true stories about what took place with men like Daniel and his three fellows there who were captive. The witness they had for the Lord in front of the pagans, in spite of death by lions, in spite of a possible fiery furnace, they stood strong for the Lord. Daniel opened his window when he was told not to pray and said, it's me, I'm praying anyway. So they stood strong for the Lord and walked humbly with God. How about a New Testament example? Well, one that's got to be there, of course, is Paul. Remember, Paul, when he was still Saul, was uh, fervent about persecuting new believers, persecuting Christians, finding them and having them put to death. The most well-known one, of course, is Stephen, the disciple. And Paul was there with the crowd when they were stoning Stephen. So Paul was out there trying to find those who were violating the Jewish faith to make sure that their voices were silenced. I think, to me, the, the crux of walking humbly with God for us is servanthood is servanthood. When our kids were young, we used to sing all the time, you know, sing gospel songs and choruses. And so when I think about servanthood, I always think about the verse that, that was put to the song, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. And amazingly for some of us, the king of kings who came to die for you and me came to be a servant came to be our servant. 
So he's our model for servanthood and the way we deal with people and in the way we deal with each other and the way you and I walk humbly with God. Matthew chapter 20. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the Savior who washed the feet of his disciples. Talk about servanthood. And it's not like you and me, we take our socks off and we wash our feet. You know, in those days, uh, these were dusty, dirty roads with all sorts of uh, animal stuff on the roads from the animals that passed by. And so they get someplace and and a sign of true humility and servanthood was washing the feet of your sojourners or your guests. That's what Jesus did. He was a servant. If you ever heard of the Rhodes Scholars, uh, Cecil Rhodes was a South African, and that's where the scholarship came from, named after him. He was, uh, he was putting on a dinner one time at his home in South Africa, he invited an important man to come in from England, who flew in, had no time to change when he got to the airport, had to go straight to the dinner. And as he walked into the hall where the dinner was held, he was surprised to see that everybody was in dinner dress, tuxedos and fine gowns, and he was in his stained travel clothes that he hadn't had time to change from. Five minutes later, down walked Cecil Rhodes, the host, in travel-stained clothes. He had seen the man walk in and, in a touch of grace and humility, walk back upstairs, change his clothing so the man didn't feel out of place and humiliated by this. Cecil Rhodes, an example of walking humbly with God. Now, I had a, uh, my seminary professor on teaching said, after you've preached, you have to tell them what you want them to do. You know, it's easy to have a sermon happen. You walk away and you go, well, that was nice. But if I tell you what I want you to do, hopefully that'll help you pull all of this in and apply it to areas that you see needs in your life or tell me if you see a need in my life. That's the type of accountability and communication I think we want and need in a group like this to be accountable to each other. First of all, justice. Oppose abortion. Pray for the lives of the unborn. Now, David Fink and I were talking earlier today, and, and we think it's either this Sunday or next Sunday is Right to Life Sunday. Anybody know for sure? It's about the right time of January for us to be reminded about the uh, tragedy of Roe v. Wade. Overturning that would not change things substantially, except in those states that wanted it changed, because abortion was certainly part of the U.S. before that. It just made it legal everywhere. So we need to pray that the Lord will bring an end to the stain of abortion on the U.S. That's justice for the unborn. Lawsuits. For some reason, this came to mind. It was just a reminder to me that among believers, Paul in Corinthians reminds us, we should not go to court against each other. We've got ways through the grace of God to solve our problems without resorting to legal things. We may not always get the justice that we think is right, but I'm reminded of Paul talking to Timothy in 2 Timothy, and he says, 
Those that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So you can't get rid of every difficult time in your life. It's a part of being a believer. It's a part of how you grow and change. And it's not going to be something that I necessarily look at and say, boy, I really enjoyed that. Because there'll be a lot of hard times and difficult times that are part of our growing. But what they point us to is they point us to the time when Christ returns. Or when we go to join Christ in heaven. And thirdly, under justice, you need to speak up in unjust situations with grace. Speak with grace. But speak into those situations. Remember, the, the word means setting things right. And I see justice in things like food for the hungry, housing for the homeless, medical care for those in need, clothing with those who don't have it. So practical ways to find justice for, remember, the oppressed is on God's mind. You need to care for the oppressed just as God wants you to care, wants me to care for the oppressed. <clears throat> One of the things I thought of today as my my son and daughter-in-law came, is in terms of justice for people like that. They're involved in Isaiah 117, right, in Evansville. If you've never heard of Isaiah 117 house, uh, one was built in Evansville sometime in the last year, and its purpose is to be a housing facility for those children who are taken from homes for some reason, you know, it's hard to say why, but sometimes in the middle of the night, you know, my, my son and his wife are on call, so they may be called out in the middle of the night because they brought kids in who need help. Uh, family Services has an office in the building, so it's all part of a group, but it gives these kids a place to stay for a day, two days, however long they need before they can find a home for them. Justice for those in need. Kindness. Man, there's a lot of times we don't see it nowadays, right? Kindness. We're a, uh, we're a fractured society in so many ways. And what that says to you and me is we can be the ones who show kindness in the midst of a world that doesn't want to be very kind nowadays. We can show kindness, and we're called to show kindness. Kindness is simple as we don't like people telling us what to do, so we don't like very much a lot of times mask mandates. Wear a mask. That's an act of kindness for somebody who may not feel the way you do about it. Kindness. Our liberties. I grew up in a time in church when, when there was a list of rules of things you could not do if you wanted to be called a Christian. And it was typically when Diane and I met at the, a small Bible school in, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. There was things like, you can't go to movies, you can't dance, you can't play cards with a deck of cards that has the royal face cards because there are all sorts of stories that went with the royal face cards. And you certainly can't drink alcohol. Times have changed sometimes for the better because now we say, you know, we want to believe what the Scripture teaches. And you couldn't hold those things up to Scripture necessarily and say, that's what Scripture says you cannot do. But I want to tell you that in the midst of your liberties that you may see that you have today, exercise kindness. Don't flaunt your liberty in front of people who may have a different approach than you do. But as, as an act of kindness, you might choose to avoid that liberty when you're around those people. Downplay it somewhat for their sake. And then befriend the friendless. You probably remember, those of you who aren't in school anymore, 
growing up during a time in school when there were kids who were just on the outs. They weren't part of the in-group. They had no friends. Now, you can't go back, but that's the type of situation where you can befriend people who somehow are different and don't have friends as an act of kindness. If, you're still, if those of you who are still in school, what a great opportunity to do that because it's a tough thing to do. Because a lot of times people will look at you and say, how can you spend time with them? They're so different in one way or another. But your act of kindness and sharing friendship with them will be something they'll probably remember their whole lives. Kindness. And then humility. We need to set examples for those inside and outside the church of what it means to walk humbly with the Lord. We can have lots of differences on theology, but I think we're called to be careful in our humility and how we share those differences. Oftentimes I didn't do that growing up because I, I was a theological debater. Nothing better than debating theology with somebody. And of course I went in to win. That was, uh, seemed to be my calling at the time. And with maturing in the faith, I realized that was in a lot of cases a mistake. I may have had something to discuss, but my method certainly wasn't something that showed me walking humbly with God. We need to find what it means to walk humbly with the Lord, even in our differences. And then lastly, to go along with that last section we talked about, model servanthood. Model servanthood. Look out for what is good for other people. We become, if we're not careful, we become a generation of people who want what's best for us. We want what's best for us and not for other people. We become people, if you look at Facebook sometimes, maybe you're like me, sometimes I look at Facebook and I go, SMH, oh wait, sorry, that's the acronym, shaking my head. I don't get to use those acronyms very often. But I look at some of the postings and I go, you know, people get the sense that they're anonymous, don't they? A lot of times, maybe there's distance between them, maybe they, have a, maybe they have a pseudonym, a fake name they use on there, but they say the most outrageous and offensive things a lot of times on social media. Don't let that be us. Model servanthood, model grace, model humility. And be before the Lord the person that he's calling you to be and you're becoming through his grace and you're growing in the faith. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us alone when it comes to understanding your word. You've given us your Holy Spirit. And I pray this morning that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit that we might know that those things that we've studied, that those things that we've talked about are things that you want us to value, things that you want us to find important, things you want us to understand. Guide us this morning as we leave this place to look for those ways we can apply this verse from Micah in our lives and reach out and impact the lives of others. In Jesus' name. Amen. Stay seated till you're released.